Welcome to the premiere episode of College Football Unmasked. I'm Ty Hayes, and this is my co-host, Andrew Martin. We are missing one co-host, Jamison White, but he is with us here in spirit. We are a new sports show bringing you all the latest news from the college football world. And this show is brought to you by the Daily Sports Network, a new network looking to get a fresh take into the sporting world. And so, Andrew, what are you thinking as far as this show, as far as this past weekend in college football? I'm excited about the show. Kind of wanted to start, get your, get your uh, biased allegiance out of the way. Go ahead and tell them. <laughs> yeah, so I have a dual allegiance in college football, <laughs> one certainly less than the other because of the implications. Uh, my secondary team is Nebraska. My dad was a big Nebraska fan, but my number one love is the Alabama Crimson Tide. And so How convenient. It, it's been a good <laughs> few years for sure. Not sure about the defense, but we'll absolutely be talking about the, that today. And speaking of what we're going to be talking about today... How about you tell them who your allegiances lie to? Well, us? if you look at the flip side of 2009, you know, Alabama kind of started to go up and Texas went down. I'm a Texas fan. Grew up uh, near Austin watching Vince Young, Colt McCoy, the glory days. Um, died yeah. out. Died out hard. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Got some issues with Tom Herman this week, but other than that, also a Duke fan, also not good. No wins this season. Actually, first win this last week. Um, and then hopefully going to grad school here in January, so might have a new team to pull for. Looking like either Florida or Miami might have to rival you in the SEC. Yeah, hey, uh, Florida definitely looking like they're building something. We'll see how that goes as time will tell. But I think that probably the best place to start is probably the biggest game of this past weekend as far as sporting news and the implications for college football. And I think without question, that would be the Red River rivalry. And your Texas Longhorns didn't do too well against the OU Sooners, so... As a Texas fan, coming out of that game, where is your head at as far as where you are now and also where your program is? The program is nowhere near where it should be. Yeah. I mean, Tom Herman keeps talking about getting back to Texas football, you know, returning to the brand that it was. We're nowhere near that. This is one of the most undisciplined football teams. Like, period. Yeah. Period. And, you know, on my YouTube channel, I've made that video talking about what are the problems with Texas football. And I think one of the things I outlined is complacency. Absolutely. I, I don't mean complacency and result, because I think a lot of people misconstrued what I meant and thought that I meant a Texas team going 0-5 would be perfectly fine with the boosters. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about complacency and approach, as in they think that the burnt orange is going to give them the results instead of the actual process. They think they deserve it. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where if you, if you look at the nitty-gritty of that game going into it, there was really no way that Texas should have lost that game. I mean, if we're just talking pure stats right now, Oklahoma had the fourth worst pass defense in FBS Division I, giving up 9.7 yards per attempt. I mean, you watching the game, where did you feel like Texas was just completely off sorts? What kind of stood out to you in that game? I mean, what stands out to me in every Texas game since Applewhite's been calling plays is the offensive play calling. Like, I, I've seen numerous articles this week, which drives me crazy, about how Sam Ellinger, while he had a good game, he was also the reason for the loss. That's crazy. I understand he had two picks. I understand he threw the last pick. Number one, when you make him do everything, the dude rushed for four touchdowns. He, we have we had the number one running back recruit in the country, and he's the leading rusher on the team through four games. Number one, he's doing that. Number two, whenever you call screen passes, as often as Texas does throughout, the, throughout an offensive drive, it messes up the rhythm. You mess up your deep pass rhythm, your medium pass rhythm, it, it throws the quarterback out of sorts. I don't know how you can put this loss on Sam Ellinger. I'm, as a Texas fan, constantly frustrated with the play calling. Yeah, I think that play calling, I mean, absolutely leaves a lot to be desired. And, you know, to point out what you said, Texas gets Bijan Robinson in the offseason, and he is an absolute stud duck at the running back. I mean, he has shades of just about any big-name running back you can think of of the past few years. One of the more complete prospects coming out, uh, him and Zach Evans from the last cycle were absolutely, I felt, head and shoulders, like absolutely one and two. But when you look at the stats for the game, when you'd expect Bijan Robinson to be up there in carries, to be up there in yards, nothing. you see Sam Ellinger <laughs> with 23 carries for 112 yards. It's like, I, I can't argue. I can't argue the fact that he's getting looks to carry the ball. He's scoring the ball in the end zone. He's a great uh, red zone runner. I mean, he is. He, he's going to get in the end zone no matter what. But why in the world are we not running the number one recruit in the nation more? 
Well, I think certainly that hit he took in the first game, that scary flip. The, the scorpion, yeah. sure. As far as... I'm with you, because if, if he's hurt, don't have him on the roster. 100%. Let him Why is he even out there yeah. if he can't go 100%? So I can't give Herman the benefit of the doubt on that Robinson is hurt. Um, and it, it's even more perplexing when up to this game, your backfield has been effective outside of Robinson. And you don't turn anywhere else. And that, I think... When was the last time you saw a Texas team who the next closest in carries for a running back was seven? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's... I mean, I can't tell you too many Division One college football games I've watched yeah. where a running back's the highest total carries will be seven, much less the University of Texas. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about some of the best running backs... Cedric Benson, Jamal Charles, Ricky Williams, yeah. Historic running backs... Then even looking at guys who unfortunately didn't pan out because yeah. of injury and Jonathan, Jonathan Gray, Gray yeah. Malcolm Brown. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely. a institution that has been built around the running game that just absolutely gave up on the running game. Yep. And it's not exactly like that you had a big receiver on the outside that was supplementing the yards for the running game. Um, so outside the running game, what did you think of the defense? Um... What defense? <laughs> yeah. That was the highest scoring red rivalry in history. They've How many games have they played? Do you know? Isn't it over 100, I think? It, it, it's got to be over 100. And that's 100. the highest scoring game? That's insane. Um, defenses, there wasn't much to talk about. But a minute ago, you mentioned how Texas should have won the game, could have won the game. Two main instances. Number one, obviously, if Dicker hits that kick in the third overtime, I think. Granted, we don't know what the Oklahoma kicker does after that. Um, but second... Texas, they were handed overtime. Lincoln Riley passing on third down. He didn't have to pass. They could have run the clock out more, maybe gotten a first down running the ball. Who knows? Texas was just gifted overtime and threw it away. Yeah, I, and that kind of goes back to play calling. And I think if I had to give Texas as a whole a synopsis of what their problems are, you know, I think culture has to be number one because yep. I think culture encapsulates complacency. Which starts with Herman. But two, it's it's a lack of identity. Sure. Week to week, you don't know what Texas team you're getting. Whereas when we look at some of the other teams across the Big 12 even, TCU, we know that they're built off of their running attack. They yep. have been for years. OU is built off of solid quarterback play. You know, Baylor, much the same as TCU, they like to run the ball. And Texas really doesn't have any sort of identity this year. And to me, it's hard to be successful without an identity. You know, one of the things that I knew was going to be difficult going into this game for Texas was the lack of production they've had in getting sacks. Yep. And this is an Oklahoma offensive line that isn't exactly vaunted like it has been in years past. I think the most surprising thing when I looked at the pre-stats before the game was noticing that Texas had only had two sacks up to that point, but Ellinger had only been sacked twice. And so going into that game, you know, Texas, which historically over the past few years has had bad offensive line play, this year finally seems to figure out their tackle position. That's going very well. The interior offensive line, on the other hand, is still problematic as ever and needs to be addressed. But going into that game, you had to like Texas's chances on the line of scrimmage, and exiting the game, OU leaves with six sacks. Yep. And so I just, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You cannot ask for Sam Ellinger to do much more than he already did. Now, I think I might disagree exactly to the degree of which he is absolved of blame. How so? You know... Do you have a problem with the last pick? Because to me, it was like, I watched the last pick, and sure, it's upsetting. I wish he hadn't thrown the ball like that. I wish he hadn't put it in that spot. But at the same time, holy crap, how much more can he do? You know what? And that's fair. Let, let me kind of modify what I'm trying to say here, because I don't have any issue with your statement on Ellinger. I don't think that when you look at the stats, he had 53 pass attempts. 
Yep. I think my question then has to be asked, is Ellinger a guy who you ask to throw the ball 53 times? No, because he's also the guy running the ball 24 times. And that's, <laughs> I, I think that's my biggest problem. So let me, it's not with Ellinger. It's with the way they're trying to use Ellinger, and it's just not to, to his strengths. No, no. I Man, I was talking to some other Texas friends about this um, this week after the game. I feel so bad for Sam Ellinger. I, as a Texas fan, I'm so happy he's here, but at the same time, I really wonder what would have happened to his career had he not gone to Texas. I know he's from the area, and he always wanted to play there, and that's awesome. I grew up the same way. I would have done the same thing. But, my God, the possibilities are endless if he had gone somewhere else. Yeah, and I think probably one of the most confusing things looking at that game is it was almost like it was being play-called as if we were playing Madden. Oklahoma coming into that game, I told you they had the fourth-worst FBS pass defense, averaging 9.7 yards per attempt. Probably even worse than that, they had three DBs graded by Pro Football Focus College at a 55 or lower. And so how they walk away from that game holding a quarterback who went for 53 attempts to 5.4 yards average attempt, that's pretty astronomical to me, and it, it speaks to the play calling. Texas seemed so bent on beating OU vertically, they weren't interested in giving what the defense was willing to give them on a play-by-play basis. So... With all that being said, I think the question has to be asked now, and I, I definitely want to hear your thought on this. Where do you go with Tom Herman from here? I have no idea. Because a lot of me wants something new, but at the same time, we've gone through Charlie Strong. Mac Brown's gone. Mac Brown's leading a top five team in the nation yeah, we'll now. We'll absolutely be hitting them. Here um, <laughs> yeah, that's a little tough to see. Um, yeah. And now we have Tom Herman. Is Tom Herman working? No. But who else are we going to get? And I mean, I, I looked, I looked at... Urban would be great. I personally don't think he's going to be coming back to coaching. I don't think it's going to happen. I think he settled in nicely at Fox. But um, I, th- I mean, he uh, does look natural. I, th- there, I think he, he likes yeah. it at Fox. <laughs> I think he probably likes the paycheck too. Um, but I looked at the outlook for the rest of the season on Texas. Oh my God! I think we're going five and four. Really? <laughs> I think we're going five so, and four. So there's no way we don't drop one of the games to Iowa State and K State the last two games of the year. And you know, actually, that's interesting that you say that because. The only other positive that happened for OU this weekend was Kansas State beating TCU. Yeah. And and so, while there's certainly no path, one would assume, for either of these teams into the college football playoff. I mean, unless the earth froze over, these guys aren't getting No, especially not with the Big Ten and Pac-12 coming back into play. No, but as far as both, that K-State-TCU game was pretty big implications for... For OU. Conference as well. Just conference play. Absolutely. Now, you know, I I think that a lot of people are upset with OU and the way they've played this year. But I think we also have to remember, Lincoln Riley has been nothing but the beacon of success. Sure. I, you know, it's weird because their quarterback situation has been so good since Lincoln Riley. Like, you had Baker, you went to Cummer, you went to Jalen Hurts, now you're at Spencer Rattler, which seemed like this... He seemed like the next one of them. It seemed like he was just going to carry in line. And I wonder if they have almost the same issue Texas has. Well, you mentioned the complacency. Almost where Spencer Rattler feels like, okay, I'm the new OU quarterback now. I just get success. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's kind of hard to argue against that when you watch the way he plays. At least how they've played so far. At least how they've played so far. And, you know, I think you could argue some of the same things for Spencer Rattler that you pointed out for Sam Ellinger. When you have a defense that is that yeah. porous, it's hard. But here's what I will say about uh, Spencer Rattler that actually does worry me. When you look at the numbers, it's great. He's throwing at something like a 73% completion percentage for the year. Ridiculously high ceiling. Ridiculously high ceiling. And while I don't blame Spencer Rattler for any of the losses OU has suffered, I think we also need to be very honest that he had an opportunity to win every game they've lost. Sure. And through a game-losing interception on all of that. Now, that's absolutely part of the maturation process, But I think it points to exactly what you're talking about. That there's this feeling that because I'm strapping on this crimson red helmet, just baller quarterback play. Following Heisman Trophy winners, yeah. And look, I think that Spencer Rattler's shot at the Heisman this year is pretty much all but finished. 
Um, especially with the Probably. way yep. Trevor Lawrence is up there playing. Yep. Etienne is having a great year. Oh, yeah. Mac Jones is oh, yeah. doing incredible stuff. I mean, you even look at Carroll, Carol, uh, Old Miss, he's having a great year. So I think that Heisman talk for Rattler is done. But in the future, I think we'd be foolish to count him out, especially if he can fix the decision-making issues. Let me ask you this. This is like a little off, off the walls, but do you think there's any problem with the fact that this is – OU's, what, fourth quarterback in four years now? I mean, that's a little unheard of. No, and I'll tell you why. And it might just be because I'm an Alabama fan. Okay. Because I think that it's a little bit different, right? And Saban and Alabama are definitely transitioning, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But system and environment matters. And while it's certainly important to have a quarterback that can run your system— the difference between a great head coach and a good head coach is a great head coach will modify a system to the players around them. Sure. Whereas a good head coach tries to make the players fit the system. Lincoln Riley has established a great system. Yep. So, you know, they're having a down year. That's cool. I think that, um, I don't know that there's really a great way to explain how down they are. I think COVID has messed up everybody, but... I don't think anybody saw this. No. So here's where I will say with Lincoln Riley, you know, I, I've never been this guy. I think he's earned a pass. Oh, 100%. 100%. And even I think you hit perfectly on the four quarterback thing because if there is a coach in the country, I'm going to say, hey, four quarterbacks in four years, get it done. I'll take Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley. And, if, and if you try and do that at Texas, oh, my God, it's going to be a it's, nightmare. <laughs> now, you know, looking forward to Texas, you do have a good quarterback coming up in Quinn Ewers. Let's hope he can stay uh, committed because Tom yeah. Herman's job might just depend yeah, on Yeah, let's – we'll see. Especially, Hopefully when I see it. Yeah, especially with Billy Bowman decommitting. But you yep. know what? Let's stick with the theme of upsets for this week because okay. there were two others this weekend, and – they happened in the SEC. Florida fans, I know this is going to be hard for you to hear because I've been hearing you chirping all week long on Twitter. I made a video talking about one of y'all's recruits and how good he was, but to watch out for Saban coming and getting. And, of course, I heard from you there, and it was all in good fun. But I'll tell you what was not in good fun this weekend. Was Kellen Mond stomping a mud hole in that Florida <laughs> defense? So... I mean, Florida's number four in the country going into that game. They lose to number 21 A&M. And, you know, I don't know how you felt about A&M last year. I think they finished the year with four or five losses. They're just always the team where it's like, y'all should be a lot better, but I just... The, this is a weird comparison. They're almost the Cowboys. It's like, on paper, it looks great, but is it actually going to work? You want to know the difference between them and the Cowboys, though? What's that? The Cowboys play in the worst division in all of football. Oh, yeah. So, and in hey, SC, there's no room for error. There's no room for error, but specifically, think about, like, just, we'll, we'll take last year, for instance, talking about A&M. They played Clemson for their out-of-conference game. That yep. was a loss. They lost to Alabama, and that was an all-time great Alabama team last year. I know it didn't finish in, you know, stats and records. But it's Bama. But it's Bama, and if you look at the way that team was built, and I always point people to that LSU game because that was a incredible game. Um, Joe Burrow cementing his legacy in that game and ultimately pushing it over the top. But A&M last year, they lose to Clemson. They lose to LSU, who is all-time great. They lose to a great, all-time great Alabama squad. Yep. Already right there, they're at three losses, and we're talking about them as maybe not being a, 25, a top 25 team in the nation with three losses. So... I had them going into this year as one of the better teams with multiple losses last year. Now, this year they already start off, they drop two games, but they go into number four, Florida, and handle them. So how do you think this ends out for Florida moving forward? And also A&M, where, where are each program at? Starting with Florida, I don't think it's bad. I think it's actually a great learning opportunity. First of all, they had to play in a super difficult environment. It's the first game of the year there's actually fans they're having to play against, so it's a lot different. Freshmen have never played against a real college crowd, so that was a much different environment for them. Also, AM's on the other side of the conference, not going to impact them super hard in SEC odds. Yeah, I think um, that's important. Yep, great chance at running the table also. The only thing I see that could trip them up, possible trap game the next the last week of the season against Kentucky. Week before Tennessee, week before going to Knoxville to play Tennessee, Kentucky might be a trap game. Other than that, they only dropped to, I think, 10th in the country, right? They, I think so. I think they're 10th in the country, so they only dropped six spots, and I think it's very reasonable they run the table. Here's the question, though. 
looking at Florida moving forward, what do you think Florida does against Georgia? That's difficult, but <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking about this when I was looking at our script earlier. I have no reason as of right now, but I think they win that game. I don't know why. I just look at it on the schedule, and I think Florida win. Well, to your credit, here's what I will tell you. As, as an NFL fan and as a football fan, Florida has one of the most intriguing players in the country on their roster to me, and that's Kyle Pitts. Yep. I mean, every time the guy gets the ball, it's electric. He just always seems to be in the right place at the right time, and him and Kyle Trask have a great rapport. And if you look at the production from each quarterback, you'd have to think that this was a pretty good game. Kyle Trask, 23 for 32, 312 yards, 9.8 average with a 92 QBR. And Kellen Mond, 25 of 35, 338 yards, 9.7 average, three touchdowns with a 94.7 QBR. So quarterback play certainly wasn't the issue there. And, you know, I think that it was surprising for a lot of fans to see, given that A&M had just come in off a game where they gave up 54 points. Yep, I was going to say that also. On the the A&M side, great bounce back. Also, a couple interesting stats. First top five win for Jimbo at AM. That's probably not super surprising. I didn't realize that. That's that, that's a that, good one. Here's a little bit of a crazier one. First top five win at Kyle Field since 2002. 2002. That's right, because the Johnny team walked into Tuscaloosa yep. and handed Bama that yep, loss. They have in not won at Kyle Field that's... since top five team 2002. So I think this is a great momentum piece for them. I really like this AM team. This feels like the year, because you mentioned earlier, they don't have to play Clemson. They don't <laughs> have to play Bama. Well, it, it's, it's a much easier road. Um, I think that helps them a lot. The only thing I'm worried about, at the end of the year for running the table, they have to go to Auburn and to Tennessee. That's a little tough. And also, at the end of the year, who knows how many fans are going to be in attendance. That's true. And, you know, the, the fans thing, that's, that's a weird one for me, right? I didn't know how I felt when Mullen said that. To me, it kind of was a stooge move by Mullen. Yeah. And the reason is, is I get it's a COVID year, but you're used to packing a stadium full of 100,000-plus. I... I felt the same way when I saw his comments, but at the same time, I was thinking, like, yeah, you know, I get it. Like, it, it is... That's it, fair. It sucks because that's not the case this year. All the games you played have been no fans. You haven't had to deal with that environment. And then you come in, and it's like, all right, well, this is different. And it's yeah. also A&M. That's a <laughs> this different This changes everything. Yeah, because, yeah, I, I mean, whatever whatever percent was allowed to A&M is, like, 70,000 people. Like, something stupid. Now, outside of Kyle Trask, you know, it was it was a little <laughs> bit perplexing. Because like Texas, Florida has been a team that we think of the running game when we think of Florida. I mean, if you even think back to that Tim Tebow game, he was a killer running the football. They have greats like Emmett Smith coming out of their backfield. If I was to tell you before the game to take the over or under on this line right here, I just want you to give me your reaction. Naquan Wright would be Florida's leading rusher with six carries for 31 yards. Over-under? Yeah. I'll hammer the over. (laughs) And I'm guessing I would have lost money. And you would (laughs) have lost money. The highest carry count on Florida was seven. That's insane. I mean, it's, it's the Texas issue. It's the same thing. But at the same time, what I will give to Florida is I love Trask throwing the ball. If that's what if that's the identity you want to roll with that this year and you want to really air it out, that's fine. But you need to have more than seven carries also. I, I just, you know, and that's fair. But if we're talking about Florida running the table, I look at that Georgia defense and how good they are. Yep. And can you beat them if you, you can't keep them honest? You have to make them respect the run. It's the only way. I, I think so. Now, here's the good news coming in for Florida. Florida gets a transfer from Clemson Bowman, who is absolutely electric. He won't be playing this year, but the kid is lightning in a bottle. Uh, Florida fans, you are in good hands. You're recruiting class top 10 in the nation. Um, I've talked about that at length on my YouTube channel. And, you know, surprisingly, Tennessee up there as well. But I I think you're a lot... I think you're very correct in your assessment of Kyle Trask. He was fantastic. It's one of the few college games I can remember... Where at the end of the game, I was surprised by the points being put up in the SEC by these two programs because historically, we don't see that type of performance out of programs like this. And when you look at the QBR and you see 92 and 94.7, yeah, 
Not much more you can ask. Yeah. Uh, to hit back on uh, Demarcus Bowman real quick. Interesting stat for Florida. Uh, Dan Mullen's got something cooking down there. He becomes the third five-star transfer to join the team. And, you know, Dan Mullen absolutely has something cooking. They also got a great corner coming in for this class who is comped on 24-7 sports to Xavier Rhodes. And... you know, there's just yeah, not much. The <laughs> that, that hurts me being a Vikings fan seeing him go, but that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, looking at Florida State's receivers, Tooney continues to impress at 92 receiving yards. Trayvon Grimes is there. He continues to look good. But I think the real surprise, I don't know about for you. Well, you know what? Let me, let me ask. In that Florida A&M game, what was the biggest surprise for you coming out of that game? Biggest surprise? I mean, overall broad view is Florida blowing the lead. Nothing specific. I just didn't expect them to blow that lead. Especially and, not to an A&M team that we don't usually see pull off these kind of wins, like the 2002 stat. They just don't usually do this. Yeah, I think that's an awesome stat. Yeah. Say that one more time. <laughs> First top five win at Kyle Field since 2002. That's incredible. And you know, A&M... They're really not, but they feel like they're synonymous with success. But they're not. It's so weird because they do have that brand to them, and they've ne- they have zero national titles. They've never really done it big time, but it has. It, it does. They do have that feeling to them. I don't know why, but it's very true. I have two surprises coming out of that game, um, and both of them negatives for Florida's defense moving forward. Yeah, the defense worries me. The defense is worrisome. Are you going to hit on time of possession? The, the time of possession was nuts. I'll, I'll let you take that uh, because that's – it's almost crazy that this game was as close as it was. When it is. Start, Whenever you look at the stats, it's like, how did this even yeah. – When you break it down, and I'm, I'm going to break down two of those right now before passing it to you. A&M's running back, Isaiah Spiller, had 27 carries for 174 yards and two touchdowns. Their leading receiver went nine receptions for 151 yards and two touchdowns. And then we haven't even talked about time of possession. Uh, I just... What, what was the time of possession difference? I believe they beat They had A&M... Uh, or they had Florida by 10 minutes. I think they had Florida by 10 minutes and had almost 100 more yards. Yes, which... <laughs> speaking of the Georgia game... If you are going up against that Georgia defense and you're being dominated on time of possession, that's not going to work. That's not. Gonna it's work. just not going to work. If if you're having to stay on the field that long on defense, and then you're saying, "All right, Trask, can you just go score points in like two minutes, please?" Because we can't get off the field. Yeah, and it, you you have to stay balanced, and that's that's my biggest worry. Now, Florida is a bright spot for you. Here's something I've noticed, and this isn't just me being a homer for Alabama. I think this is a real thing to just kind of build off of. That A&M defense is kind of sneaky good against the run. I watched them give Najee a lot of trouble, and I mean trouble in a different way. They brought a sort of physicality to the line of scrimmage that was kind of very surprising. And you know what? I will say the same about certain players on Missouri. Missouri was very impressive defensively, not as a whole, but specifically Bolton, their middle linebacker. I I mean, y'all watch out for that name going into the draft coming forward because he is someone to watch out for. Um, closing on Florida, I think you made the best point of the whole discussion. And that is the one saving grace to this loss is that it comes from an SEC team on the other side of the bracket. Yeah, it's, it's almost just a great learning point for them. It's, it's obviously not great to lose, especially during this COVID era where you don't have as many games. But good learning moment. You get the experience of playing in front of fans in a year where no one else is, and it doesn't really hurt you all that much. And it could be nullified depending on what happens with that Bama-Georgia game. Coming yep. Also, game. granted, if A&M runs the table, that loss looks a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, A&M could run the table. They really could. They, this they, is If they're going to do it, this is the year. This is the year. They have the experience. And I'll tell you, probably, you know, the most impressive thing about A&M is their offensive line. Their offensive line is experienced. Their offensive line plays with discipline. I think that that is one of the better games Pete Golding has called. Um, we sent pressure from multiple different ways, and every time they had an answer for it with just super disciplined offensive line play. And we were getting to Mond. We had multiple hurries on him, just couldn't translate it in sacks. But, you know, speaking of another upset that happened this weekend, and it is a rough season for those Bayou kittens. 
They are uh, the Bayou Bengals have turned into the Puddle Kittens this year because there's nothing intimidating about them going forward. So you said we're gonna go into another upset. Is this is this an upset? I mean, I I get it. They're defending national champs, but oh my gosh, they're just not that good. I think that you actually hit the nail on the head because as I was writing this, I actually thought to myself, I think. That there are people out there, myself included, you, and I think even some of the listeners that could argue that this game wasn't an upset if you were looking at LSU with realistic expectations. And, I, you know, when, when you say this, I've gotten a lot of pushback online from LSU fans, and I have to tell them, y'all had the greatest college football season ever. Oh, yeah. Arguably, with maybe the best quarterback ever. Maybe the best quarterback ever. Nobody calls you crazy if you say Joe Burrow is the best college quarterback of all time. Nobody bats an eyelash to that statement. So you have to realize that when you lose arguably the greatest quarterback in college football history, one of the most consistent defensive coordinators in college football history, one of the bright young minds in play calling, and then, what, what is it, they returned five starters as a whole? Five or six, yeah. This isn't surprising when you take all that into account. No, it's not. Um... And you know what? To LSU's credit, I just pointed something out, and I'm going to stand by that because it, I, I believe it's true. Missouri's better than I think people are giving them credit for. You know, I don't know a whole lot about Missouri, um, but looking at the LSU side of things, the number one thing that jumped out to me, one sack and one hurry for the whole game. Yeah, and that's, That doesn't work. And when you think of LSU, you've never thought of them as an offensive team. No. And, you know, they're, they're not the only team in the SEC that have sort of shifted, but it's different, right? Like, Bama's defense was porous. Florida's defense was porous. A&M's defense was porous. LSU's defense was bad. And, you know, granted, A&M, or Alabama's defense, I'm sorry, was bad against Ole Miss. But LSU's defense has been bad every game this year. And, you know... I think uh, another interesting stat from that one. LSU's best rusher, nine carries for 38 yards. Something's going on with the running game this year. <laughs> this week, at least. And, you know, I- I've-, I've racked my head a lot talking about, because this kind of bleeds us into another topic we're going to be talking about shortly, and that is have these more spread out offenses killed defense in the Big 12? Or, I'm sorry, these killed defenses in the SEC, these spread offenses mirroring Big 12 offenses. And while it's hard for me to argue that they haven't, the only thing I will say in its defense is that it's it's hard to play defense in this era. The rules are bent to an offensive game. Absolutely. And we're on a limited offseason with COVID. Sure. That's the only thing in defense of defense I can say this year. Especially with the COVID. That's where, that's where the biggest factor is to me because if we come into next year, no COVID, let's say everything's fine, we got full stands, full season, everything's back to normal... If this is still an issue, then I'm going to look at it and be like, all right, this conference is transitioning. This is just the new style of football. Because it's already happened in the NFL. Yeah. It's, it's already – I mean, if you're talking about rules, the NFL is already way more tailored to offenses now, and it's becoming more so in college. But if we see the same thing next year, I will fully buy in. I, I agree. Um, now, that being said, LSU, your problems are a fewfold here, right? And I think that – the best way to identify where you're at is to be very objectively honest with yourself, right? And if you don't want to do it, well, that's exactly what I'm here to do, is to be very <laughs> objectively honest into where you are. You know, Ed Ogeron is an interesting figure to me. Because he, he proved me wrong last year. Yep. And this is something I will give Ed Ogeron. He might be the best coach in the country at connecting with his players. I'm going to ask you this right here. What other coach do you think could totally not lose a locker room in a situation? And this actually happened to Coach O, right? Coach O went on a Friday where he thought he was going to have practice. He walks in and there are only five players in there. He gets a call maybe 15 minutes later and says, and this is from the dean of students at LSU, and they say, your team is up here protesting and they didn't tell you. You need to come up here and talk to us. We see all these programs across the nation doing protests, and they included their coaches. 
The LSU players didn't feel the need to include Coach O, but he had to come to Jesus moment with that team afterwards, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. The man can connect. Um, Absolutely. But it takes a lot more sure. than being a good person at connecting with youth to win in college football, especially in the SEC. And that's, you know, that's a skill that's needed because part of the job is developing young men. And if you listen to players leave LSU, um, Chase on, for instance, he, he talks about Ed O like another father. Yep. Just loves it, yep. right? So, but if there was ever an arrogant statement to make coming into this year, Ed O'Geron said in an interview that this year's defense with Bo <laughs> Pelini, this is the same Bo Pelini that screamed at everybody at Nebraska because he was too inept <laughs> to do anything himself, is better than Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda, ladies and gentlemen, is the same man that helped foster the culture of DBU after Saban left. Where do we go from there? That's bold. <laughs> that, that is a bold statement, and that take is not aging well. <laughs> it's, it's, it gets worse every day. Yeah. Um, because, and even, look, even on the offense, right, I, I understand that Miles Brennan is playing well, right? In that game, he went 29-48, to 48, 430 yards, nine average yards on the throw. That's not bad. Four touchdowns, no interceptions, 71 rating. Yep. So, you know, you can't blame the young man. You can't ask for a lot more either. You can't. <laughs> but what if I was to tell you that LSU is trying so hard to be the team they were last year and be Joe Brady that they're asking Miles Brennan to throw the ball 48 times a game while simultaneously their best rusher has nine carries for 38 yards? Are we asking ourselves to play so outside of who we are as a culture, as an identity, that we're losing sight on what LSU football is? Because that's what it looks like to me. It looks like to me they're still trying to convince themselves that Joe Brady is there. Uh, what, what do you think on that? I think, sorry LSU fans, this year is a lost hope. I think pack it up, accept it. If you're going to have a year like this, be happy it happened this year because... Maybe an asterisk mark season, whatever. You can look past and it. And you're coming off of the greatest season. All and time. you're coming off your, You can just call it a hangover. <laughs> it's that simple. You can just push it aside, call it a hangover. Hey, we'll be back next year. Um, the outlook for the rest of the season, you can tell me if I'm crazy. I think they're going to lose like five games. And Well, I think to your point, it's, it's not going to get any easier. It, no, in fact, it's going to get worse. The, the easiest part of their schedule is exactly. where it's they were get at worse. right here. It's going to get worse. They have Florida next week, then South Carolina, Probably Auburn, loss. Bama, loss. Arkansas. <laughs> I think they can take Arkansas. I think they got Arkansas after a <laughs> five-game skid. <laughs> I hope they can take – and I think, you know, South Carolina will be interesting. I think Florida will, looks to bounce back next week Absolutely. against LSU. That's going to be a statement yep. Yep. for Florida and Trask. 100% agree. South Carolina, I think Ed O and them finally look to have a statement game there. I don't think so. I'll take South Carolina. That's fair. When, when that game comes up, we'll, we'll have that conversation. So we're going to put a pin in that. South Carolina, LSU, right? Auburn, I don't think they're beating Auburn. No. They're, they're not beating my tide. Last year was no. a one-off. <laughs> That's, that is going to be a bloodbath. Yeah, that's going to be bad because Bama's looking for vengeance. And with that, defense, with that defense Bama has being bad and Miles Brennan actually putting up numbers, you can bet that Saban will be looking to send the dogs oh, to yeah. make a statement oh, in that yeah. game. Um, you know, Arkansas, after we talked about, we think they can win that game. I don't think they're beating a and I don't either. I, Kellen Mond is hyper-effective this year. The offensive line is good, and you pointed out probably the most surprising thing, LSU didn't generate a sack. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to hit on it later in gambling, but I think this win last week for A&M is going to really propel them. I think they're going to get a ton of momentum off it, keep building on it, and they're probably going to run through LSU. Yeah, I, I, I find it hard to disagree with that. And then they end the year with Ole Miss. And, you know, once again, call me a homer. I've yet to decide whether the offensive performance from the Old Miss Bama game, which eclipsed the highest scoring game in SEC football history, the Bama fan in me is telling me that Lane called a perfect game. 
Sure. Right? He had all and, the motivation and, in the world to do so. And I think he did. Yeah. Lane is a brilliant offensive mind. And so, to me, that's not indicative of our defense. Now, certainly it is to a degree. He exposed right? a lot of holes. For sure. No doubt there. But I don't know that the defense for Bama is as bad as it looks coming out of that Ole Miss game. I think when you have a guy like Lane Kiffin who is at Alabama who kind of knows how Saban knows how likes to do it. And I don't know if you've ever heard this story. Marlon Humphrey used to tell this when he'd be talking to the media um, coming out of Alabama practices because Lane would just get the defense so mad at him. At the end of practices when Lane knew that they were tired, he would just start sending bombs over Baghdad. He would just consistently run fade routes and throw it over the top to Calvin Ridley to get under the defense's skin. So he knows what makes a Saban defense tick. All that being said, he's going to crush LSU. That Ole Miss offense is going to crush LSU. Do you know where the game's at? Uh, I don't actually. I might take LSU if it's in Baton Rouge. I'll, I'll take the coach, oh, let's have a little pride and win the last game. Oh. I'll, I'll, I'll take the puddle kittens if in the last it, game. If it's in Baton Rouge, I'll take it. If we're going to Oxford, no, I'd rather have Lane Kiffin. Look, but. <laughs> look you don't think that Lane Kiffin's not going to walk in to the Bayou Bengal with some memes and just start <laughs> just start handing it out? Look, I I don't think it's in Lane's disposition to go anywhere quietly, and I certainly don't think <laughs> I'm he not, looks... <laughs> I'm not saying he's going to go quietly. <laughs> I, I think he looks at LSU as kind of a cleanup game versus Bama. Because historically, in that Maybe. side of the SEC... There's two sides of the coin there. Historically, on that side of the SEC, it's been kind of Auburn, Bama, and LSU since early 2000s, right? And I think that Old Miss and Kiffin understand that. Now, speaking of Bama, and we're going to start looking forward to next week in these next week games... Bama versus Georgia happens this week, and it's one that I—I'd be lying if I said I wasn't worried. Um, Old Miss exposed a lot in the Bama's defense. Number two, Bama versus number three, Georgia. What do you think? I think number one. I heard this quote from Saban on Monday. Believe me, no one's satisfied with how we played. All that tells me is that Bama defense just went through hell in practice. So number one, I think they're going to play a little bit better. Number two, I think if Mac Jones can figure out a little way to dissect that Georgia defense and kind of put some pressure on um, Stetson Bennett, I don't know that Bennett can step up and go toe-to-toe with him and make the same throws. I think that's where Bama can gain the edge. You know, I heard some people talking about Mac Jones being nothing more than a game manager. And I, I kind of want to push back on that because I think you have something. No, I, I will absolutely push back on that. I think Stetson is a game manager. And I think what he has done so far is hold off and kind of not mess up, not mess up what they're doing at Georgia. And on the other hand, Mac Jones has stepped up. You know, and there's there's some YouTubers that I think make phenomenal content. Uh, that I mean, just super great college football analysis. And for the first time in a long time, I kind of had to disagree with the take because they were saying that anybody could go and play quarterback for Bama with those receivers. And, you know, I think the text I sent to you on Saturday kind of encapsulates the difference in Mac Jones and Sam Ellinger, and it's exactly why I disagree with people saying that anybody could step in and play quarterback for Bama. There's a difference in being accurate enough to get it into a catch radius and then being accurate enough to get it into where it's only in the receiver's catch yep, radius. Yep, put it where only your receiver can get it. Sam Ellinger is accurate enough to me to get it into his receiver's catch facility. Give him a chance, yep. Whether the cornerback might be in the location the ball is or not, it might. It, it, but it's where the receiver can get it. Mack this year is putting the ball on a dime. I mean, he is second in the country, I think, right now in 20-plus um, yards downfield completion percentage. He's number one in the country in quarterback rating right now. And, it, you know, I'm not going to argue it, it's not easier when you have pound for pound, and you heard it here first, pound for pound, the best player in college football, Jalen Waddle. That certainly makes your day a lot easier. Yep. So we know that the Georgia defense is number one, right? But do you think that Georgia offense can kind of take control of some of the things Bama has shown as deficiencies. See, that's where I'm struggling at. I think if the Bama defense steps up enough 
to let Mac Jones set the tone in the game, I don't think Stetson Bennett's going to go throw for throw in Brian Denny against Mac Jones. I don't think that's happening. Also, another stat for you. Saban 5-1 since 2007 against Georgia. Won five straight. 5-1, and one, and if I'm not mistaken, he this weekend became either 20-0 and 0 or 21-0 and 0 against former assistants. He has really? never lost to a former Didn't assistant. Didn't know that. Yeah. Didn't know that. Um, but I, I, all these points I'm making for Bama, I'm still going to go the other way. I'll take Georgia. I, I, I like taking the underdog in this. I don't know why. I just think if the Georgia defense can hold them in the game, keep them in a striking distance till the fourth quarter, they have a chance. I have two keys for this game. Because I've gone back and I've watched every Bama game up to the Old Miss game. I don't know if I want to rewatch the Old Miss game because it hurt <laughs> a little bit of my pride. Um, because the Old Miss game kind of exposed a lot, right? And it, it was sure. more about Lane kind of knowing how to attack the defense than I think it was relative true weaknesses within the Bama defense. So my two keys. First, the Georgia defense has been phenomenal at stopping the run. Bama historically is something crazy like 58 and 0 when they can run over 100 yards. Okay. Can Najee Harris and Brian Robinson get to 100 yards? I think so. That's my first question. I think I think Najee, yes. Cuz if they can get to 100 yards, it's going to be very hard to stop the guys on the outside. Absolutely. Um and you know it you, everybody was happy when you have Jerry, Judy, and Henry Ruggs leave, and then they see the kid from Canada, John Mechie III, stepping up, catching 83-yard dimes from Mac Jones all over the place. So the, the receivers on the outside are certainly problematic for Georgia. Um, and, you know, Georgia got attacked some by Tennessee this past weekend. Yep. And I think Bama will look to replicate that. My second key, and this is actually for Georgia to attack Bama, there's one position on the field... Two, I'll be honest, that really scare me for Georgia. One, they're running backward. I think they have a phenomenal running backward. Um, Zeus is incredible. Coming back off of injury, he is everything he thought he would. We thought he would be. Zamir White um, almost committed to North Carolina coming out of yep. high school, decommitted yep. from there, going to Georgia, and it looks like it's a match made in heaven. I'm scared of him, but particularly, they have a freak on that roster. Darnell Washington. Stands six seven and a half at tight end, and let me tell you, he doesn't move like he's six seven and a half. He is built like a locomotive, and he moves like he's a ballerina. The one weakness I've seen in the Bama defense up to this point is, for as great as Dylan Moses has been, he consistently gets caught with his eyes in the backfield, and Lane just abused it all night long. When you have him up against a 6-7 tight end, even if your eyes aren't caught in the backfield. They better not even gaze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when, when you have a rushing attack like that in a 6-7 tight end, yeah, say, if, if there is an offense or a team that you're going to get caught looking in the backfield on, it might be Georgia. It might be Georgia, and that worries me. Yep. Um, all that being said, though, I have to take Alabama in this game. No One, way. Because, you're taking Bama? No yeah, way. Super surprising. <laughs> One, because I'm a fan. Two, I think that we've seen this story before. Absolutely. I, I, I am taking Georgia with the full understanding that Bama could easily win this game. Bama typically plays up to their opponent, notwithstanding sure. the 2015 Ohio State game and the 2018 national champion against uh, Clemson. Clemson. Yep. Uh, typically, they play up to their opponent. I think the Bama defense, they, nobody can be happy. With how that performance was. No, that's why I think this practice this practice week was hell, and they will play with a little bit more pride. Did you see Twitter? I did not. After that game was going? No. Oh, man. <laughs> it is not a good day to be Pete Golding in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. <laughs> People are, fire, are calling for his firing, and I don't know if you saw. I think maybe more than anything, because I know how it was when I was in a locker room, right? You wanted to impress the older guys, and specifically the guys that came before you. Sure. When we'd have guys that had made it to college football in our high school locker room come back, man, when they came back to watch a game, we wanted to show out. Because Absolutely. Because we, we didn't want to disappoint them. Yeah, it's extra motivation. You hopped on Twitter Saturday night, and these Bama alum were oh, yeah. not happy at the state of Alabama football. And, you know, I, I can't blame them given the fact that they gave up 600 yards of offense. They couldn't stop the run. They, they couldn't stop anything. Ole Miss was 4 of 4. On first on fourth downs, 
When was the last time you thought you'd hear a Saban defense being 100% fooled on fourth down? Not often. Not, I don't not think in not the modern ever. era. I don't think not ever. Um, now, I'm going to die on the hill, at least for right now, that COVID has really hurt defensive play across the board. It's that much harder to play defense in the modern era, especially when you don't have adequate preparation, and COVID eliminated adequate preparation for almost everybody. So that's, that's kind of where I hang my hat on. I do think, though, that this Bama offense is so balanced. They are. That they will find ways to attack. It's a very balanced attack of, all right, pick your poison, because which, whichever way you go to stop us, we'll go the other way. We'll, we'll go be the other just way. fine. And, you know, Steve Sarkeesian, I think, isn't getting the respect he deserves this year. Think about it. In, in that last game versus Ole Miss, they didn't go over the top. They were very underneath anything the defense was willing to give, Sark was willing to take. And as soon as you come up a little bit, we'll drop it over your head. Now, Lane, to be fair, never came up. He he forced his defense to stay back, and that was a good way to attack it, except we saw that they didn't stop Bama maybe one time all night. Mac was almost flawless. Um, So I think that the keys for this, can they stop Darnell Washington, the freakish tight end, can they rush for over 100? And can we get some Bama sacks? We've talked about on my YouTube channel, Will Anderson, freak freshman. And he's got plenty of quarterback pressures, but nothing is translated into hardcore sacks. So moving forward, I know you when you came in, you were interested in some of the games this weekend and how they were betting and what the betting lines were. So I've kind of written down some games that I think are interesting for this weekend, and I want to get your opinion on the first one, and that is BYU-Houston. BYU-Houston from a gambling aspect? Yeah, let's let's hear it from a gambling aspect. I'll take BYU minus five. I think they cover the spread. Uh, The main reason I say that is because they have four games of experience. Granted, Houston is a great team. They're coming in with a great coach. But one game of experience, they're not fully at game speed yet. They're not at that full level of conditioning that BYU's at. Um, so I'll take that along with a loaded offense. They're going to score plenty of points to cover minus six. Also, 13 sacks through four games. I'll take that all day. So I, I love BYU in the Houston game. That's, that's, that sacks total is just nutty, right? To, I think that speaks to why they're so successful. In this modern era of defense, sacks are king. Yep. It's got to be. Now... Call me a contrarian, but I'm here to rain on the parade. Okay, all right, that's fine. I actually have this as a little bit of a trap game. Sure. The reason is, it's kind of for everything you said, and I think everything you said logically makes sense, and I don't know that I would bet, if personally, yeah. on this one, the way I believe it will go down, right? Because I kind of have it as a trap game, although I don't know how logical it is. If I was betting, I would take the minus five, like you said. However, I'm not going to be betting on this one only because we only have one game of film right. on Dana Holgerson's Houston squad. Could be a really big negative, could be a really big positive. It, it could go <laughs> you either just don't know. way. You yeah. don't know. Yeah. And, you know, we knew Holgerson at West Virginia was constantly pulling funky stuff out. He's a really smart, offensive-minded guy. I look for him to do some funky stuff against BYU because he's got nothing to lose. I mean, at this point, he's already been out of so many games, missed so many games, and you're, you're coming back for your second game against a ranked opponent. I mean, you throw the book at them. I actually think that that could be a little bit of an upset game for this weekend, but I do have to admit, if I was inclined to bet on it, I think the smart money is minus five. I, I think everything logically speaks to BYU winning this. I don't really have a for sure reason why I think they wouldn't. <clears throat> The next one I have slated, I don't know about you for betting, to me the LSU-Florida game is interesting. We kind of hit why earlier, because Florida looks to rebound, and what is LSU going to do? They're not. Um, I don't know the line for this game, but I, you know, the money line is probably stacked heavily against Florida, so I probably wouldn't take the money line spread. I, if I had to guess, I'd say 11.5, 12.5. I don't really love that return. So if you're going to bet on anything, maybe over under, but I'd rather stay away from it. Florida's going to kill them. Um, but betting, I just don't love the return on that. Yeah, I, I can't blame you on that. Um, I will say this, though. I have Florida winning the game. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. I, I think... Easily. They, they, they need the bounce back. They're going to get the bounce they, back. And they have to establish a running game and yeah. look for this to be the game they do it against. Um, 
because it's it's LSU. Everybody in the SEC wants a piece of LSU this year because of last year. Yep. And it just happens, LSU, that you happen to be not very good <laughs> the year that everybody wants to punch you, you in the face. You hate to see that. You hate to see it. So what's your next game to watch out for as far as betting goes? This Lock week? of the week, A&M 6.5 versus Mississippi State. Here's your crazy stat for the week. Gotcha. Mississippi State. How, guess how many times they threw the ball last week? How many times? 70 times, and they scored two points. They threw the ball 70 times, scored two points. A&M's coming off their first top five win in the Jimbo Fisher era. Hammer six and a half. Hammer it. A&M is winning that game easily. A&M winning the game. So, you know, this kind of bleeds into what we were talking about earlier. And is the Big 12-style offense killing SEC defense? And week one, you saw a lot of pundits point to Mike Leach and K.J. Costello come in there and just sling all over LSU. Since then, it's been very quiet, right? And sure, defense in the SEC hasn't been up to par. But that's why I think it's more indicative of outside factors other than a a brand of offense per se, I think the Mississippi State A&M game is interesting because A&M and Jimbo know they have to run the table. Yep. Coming from here on out. They've got all the momentum in the world to do so, too. And and look, they need to get a big recruiting class this year as well because they have a lot of veteran presence on that offensive line and they will be losing a lot of veteran presence on that offensive line and they've already missed out on the number one player in the state of Texas. Now, granted, I don't know that they were ever getting the number one player in the state of Texas this year. That was y'all's wheelhouse, and Tom Herman dropped the ball there like he has been doing, which we got to talk about that at some point. I think that you're 100% right. This is the lock of the week. Yeah. A&M is going to come in here trying to play a very physical brand of football. They know what Mississippi State can do with K.J. Costello. They know what they haven't been able to do. And I think the last thing A&M wants this year is to be the team that Mike Leach and K.J. Costello figure it out against. Yep. Uh, And I don't see them letting that happen. I agree. So, for me, another game that I look forward to this week, and it's no particular implications for it, I think it's just a fun game. And that's the UNC Florida State. I'm glad you went there. That was my next one as well. Okay, so do you have a betting line for that one? Yep, I'm taking the over. uh, 63.5. Florida State, just... A little clap. First time I've seen Florida State play with like actual heart, I think, since any James sort of Winston. Fire. Like anything. Well, any you, little pulse. You got to remember, they were good for the year after Winston left. Yeah, I'm just generalizing. They, yeah, but, for sure. Um, but it feels like it has been an eternity since we've seen them play with any sort of edge. So that was nice to see. They've been scoring a lot of points this year. I think their lowest, I might be wrong, I think their lowest scoring total in the year was 24 points in a game. Meanwhile, UNC is coming off their highest scoring performance of the year, 56 points. Um, Sam Howell's getting better and better. Their weapons on the outside, Daz Newsom, Bo Corrales, they've, they've got great options. I think the over's hitting. You know, earlier in the year, one of the first videos I did on my YouTube channel was evaluating the top quarterback rooms in the nation. And there was one room, and I'm sorry to say this, I didn't care for, and I took it off in place of another. And I took... Ellinger and Texas out of my top 10 quarterback rooms in the nation to boost Sam Howell on that list. And that's not a knock on Ellinger, right? But it's also what you pointed to play calling. But look, this is exactly why I put this game here because Sam Howell to me is just about the closest thing to must-see quarterback play there is in college football right now. The kid is on fire. And look, I think another interesting thing, I love defense, They just got a kid that's supposed to be a senior in high school that's contributing right now on that defense in Tony Grimes. I mean, they are loaded with talent, and I know it hurts you to see Mac Jones go somewhere else and have them play a brand of football that is so similar to what Texas played. Sure. Uh, I've talked about, I've talked to some other Texas fans about this this week. It is tough, but at the same time, I look back at that era where he was leaving. It was time. And, and it, that's fair. Whether Mac Brown still has it or not is one thing, but it, it just it was done at Texas, and it is what it is. So for the last few things before we shut down episode one, I, you know, speaking of the ACC, the ACC historically has been a dumpster fire. 
Yeah. Right? Just horrible. I, I am an ACC fan, but I can't disagree with the football aspect of that. But is the ACC getting better now? Absolutely. Notre Dame coming in, first of all, should have uh, happened yeah. Should have happened a long time ago. They, they need to ACC be basketball, and they got a man. They also got Syracuse and Louisville, granted, but it was a nice jolt. Um, they're getting the same effect in football right now. Very happy they're in the ACC. Also, five, six years ago, if I were to tell you, hey, Four weeks into the season, there's four ACC-ranked teams, and Florida State's not one of them. They're at the bottom of the division. Yeah. What would you say to that? I think that—I mean, I told you the other day, um, I had Florida State a few years ago and Clemson running the ACC in college football. It looked like it would be that. For some time, and you know, when Ronnie Harrison took out DeAndre Francois' leg, it actually took out Florida State's hopes and dreams. It really did. They've never been the same, and— it's, it's sad to see, but I, I'm like you. Florida State's a dumpster fire. Clemson is Clemson. Clemson right? is Clemson. I think Miami being better is good for the brand of college football. I wish I wish they had competed. A, I wish they had competed a little bit better with Clemson. They were the scoreboard doesn't properly reflect it. They were never in that game. I mean, the, they're getting the, better recruiting. The blocked there. field goal at the end of yeah. the first half that gave them some it, points that they wouldn't have otherwise had. True. It wasn't as close true. as the scoreboard says. But UNC, they look real now. Granted, when, so I I think I know where you're going with this. Is UNC really like a top five, top ten team? Because they're no. good, no doubt, but it's no. it, it, it's, it seems it's too good too to soon. be true to but me. It's still yeah. too soon. Yeah. Clemson wasn't built in the day. We're talking about that Florida State Jameis team. People, y'all gotta realize that was when this Clemson started being built. We're talking back with CJ Spiller, Taj yep. Boyd. This wasn't something Sammy that happened Watkins, overnight. Andre yeah. Hopkins, yeah. And uh, this is the beginning for UNC. But Rome wasn't built in a day, no. and they're staring at Rome. And you can see how it's been transitioning the last couple years in Mac Brown. As a Duke fan, pains me to say it, but Carolina's getting good. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think is the uh, last little bit to end this segment on to end our premiere episode, because we've been talking about some gambling. And, you know, COVID kind of wrecked everything from a financial aspect in college football. Sponsorships went out the window because how are you going to sell a sponsorship when you don't even know if people are going to be in the stands? Yes. You don't even know if you're going to put the product on the field. So I think that one of the most intriguing storylines to me is that the University of Colorado becomes the first Power 5 conference to enter into a deal with a sport betting company. And you were actually telling me a bit more about this. I think you know more about it than I do. So I was just reading up on it a little bit. So IMG Litterfield, they basically partnered with them. Litterfield has all their rights to a media aspect, broadcasting, ticketing-wise. They help market the school. Um, in addition to that, IMG Litterfield and Colorado signed a deal with PointsBet, who is also signed with the Denver Nuggets, um, Colorado Avalanche, the Pepsi Center, which the Nuggets play at, and then the Pro Lacrosse team, which I'm blanking on. I think the Mammoth or something like yeah. that. Um, so they're signed with all those, and they're going to be opening up I guess, a new gambling aspect for Colorado sports. You can't legally gamble in Colorado right now, but they're changing that. They're working on an app to come out that's going to allow the betting in that centennial state. So I think it's brilliant. Number one, as a college student at a school where we're a small school, we're not a powerhouse, but in the wake of COVID, tuition's gone up, parking capacity's gone up, everything has gone up. And you look at a school like Colorado, they just figure out a different aspect. Ingenuity they, is king. They figure out a different way to attack it financially, and it's brilliant. Yeah, and it's got to be. Yeah. Uh, I think the ingenuity is king with college football opening up, college football betting. And look, I think we have to be very honest. And, you know, this kind of bleeds into what we saw today with the NCAA's transfer eligibility rule, where you get a one-time transfer Nothing held against you. It's which, nice that it finally clearing it up yeah, instead finally. of just instead of just some weird slew of okay, this guy's good to play, this guy's not. Yeah, finally we get something. The NCAA realizes that their days are numbered. They realize public opinion of them is just in going down. So how do you fix that? Sports betting is the hot new thing. You enter into some sport betting things, and look, you gotta you have to do it because if not, you're going to bleed money, and you have to go with the where the money is. And you know what? To end this show, kind of to give y'all a tidbit into something that we were talking about right before the podcast started, something that we both love to do, and we'll, we'll definitely jump into it a bit more next weekend. With the NCAA being so bad in public optics, <laughs> is NCAA college football the savior? 
as far as them making a video game for the NCAA? It really could be. Because number one, in order to do that, the image and likeness stuff has to be approved. You have to get that all the way through across the country. If that happens, Which is only good for the players. If that happens, it's only good for the players. It's only good for the outlook. Fans will like it. Number two, as, as silly as this may sound, that video game has so much power. I mean, it's yeah. been since... 2013, it was NCAA 14, but it comes out a year early. So 2013 was the last time we got a game. If they did that, yeah. I mean, they would look so much better to the public. It would bring in more revenue. It would fix so many problems. And I think it would shut a lot of people, at least like myself, up for a little bit. Because I'm yes. the type of idiot that if you give me that video game for about a month, nobody's going to see me. No. And I'm not going to realize how bad the NCAA is at their job until I'm going afterwards. back to my childhood. Yeah, I... <laughs> I think that that's absolutely something, and we'll absolutely be taking a look at that. But y'all, thank you for listening in to the premiere episode of College Football Unmasked. I've been Ty Hayes, sitting beside me. Andrew Martin. And uh, we're looking to come to you live every Thursday. We'll have a show coming out. Um, we have a lot planned for this show. We're going to be talking about college football news, recruiting, tidbits, everything. But yeah, that's the show. Good to have y'all along for the journey.